everyone. How's it going? Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you're all doing great out there. And today we have a real treat for you. We have, if you're like me, and I think you are, a lot of you are, nine out of 10 people out there, I think, uh, love Vietnamese food. But if you ask them what they like about it, they may be able to name three things. They might name pho, maybe a banh mi, maybe a spring roll. But for a lot of us, that's how deep our knowledge goes. But today, I think we're going to go a little deeper. We're going to talk a little bit more about the, the diversity and the uniqueness of Vietnamese cuisine. And so hopefully we'll... We'll teach you a little something today. And so to help us with this, we brought on a couple people. But first of all, I want to introduce a special co-host for the day. You know her from shows like America's Test Kitchen, Cook's Country, uh, and Technically on YouTube, one of my new favorite channels. And of course, she was on the Infatuation podcast with us a couple months ago. It is our old pal, senior editor at Cook's Illustrated and Test Cook, Lon Lamb. Hey, Lon, welcome back. Hey, Curtis. How's it going? It's going good. You uh, you hustled over from the studio you had a shoot this morning? Yeah, it was actually a location shoot, and it's kind of overcast and rainy in Boston, but um, that kept the crew going, and now I'm here. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining. You you did, at the end of our recording, you did say, hey, let me know if I can help with anything, and so uh, I thought of you when this topic came up. I was like, we should bring Lon back on. You know, when I got your email and saw Andrea's name, I was like, you guys... I got a thing I got to do, so we need to wrap this shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Man, we appreciate you being here, and you're going to help out with some questions and insights, of course, with your knowledge. But let's welcome to the show our expert for the day. She is author, teacher, consultant, and podcaster, Andrea Nguyen. Hey, Andrea, how are you? Good, Curtis. Hey, Lon, how are you? Hi, Andrea. How are you both? We're doing great. And where are you calling in from today, Andrea? Your Bay Area? I am. I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in um, Santa Cruz in the Monterey Bay. Oh, okay. How's the weather down there? We got a little clouds over where we are. You know what? It's always cloudy. We got sun today. I was so happy. I went out for a walk and I was nearly late. Um, but I, you know, am very much sympathetic to all the folks in the Northeast with oh. the air challenges because, you know, we we had them here a couple of years ago in, in 2020. Yeah. So with the wildfire, especially in Santa Cruz, um, so, you know, that overcast sky that Lon just talked about, I know it, yeah. Yeah, that Armageddon feeling. Yeah. It's it's a little orange out and that's disconcerting. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. seen pictures from New York City and it reminded me of that day in 2020 when the skies were orange and we were all home hunkered down and it just looked like, yeah. like, is this, is this how it's going to end? Is this the end of us? But yeah, this is uh, it. But you know what? Um, it also reminded me of being in Southeast Asia in cer- during certain times in the, the year. Huh. Um, in September, um, number of years ago, I was in Hanoi and I flew in and I thought, oh my God, you know, they're like, you know, this is, they're having like a barbecue festival or something. Cause the entire city smelled smoky. Uh-huh. It turns out it was like burn season after the uh-huh. harvest. So everyone was burning rice straw and we had the most mirac- beautiful sunsets, these like, Bright orange. you know, orange red suns. <laughs> yeah. And I'd never seen anything the, the likes of that. And, um, nope. It was just a lot of air pollution, mm. and uh, I got laryngitis because I stupidly did not wear a mask. Mm. But we all are friendly with masks yeah. now in 2023. <laughs> hey, Lon, how did how did you meet Andrea? Where, where did you meet Andrea? Well, I've been checking out Andrea's blog for years and years, but we didn't meet in person until maybe five years ago. I had uh, a colleague at America's Test Kitchen. He was a fellow test cook named Andrew, and he and Andrea are friendly, and he brought her in one day, and we sat around at our desks, and I want to say we tasted Maji sauce because Andrew had, like, the variations of the sauce from, like, five different countries. It was super fun. It was. <laughs> He like he so he like hides hid them in his house and in his desk or something like that. He pulled them out, and we all were like testing them because Andrew and I are um are glutamate friends and we're into MSG <laughs> and you know that was so fun. Yeah, Andrew is a little bit of a pack rat, and you never quite know what he's going to pull out um, of his fridge <laughs> and how long it's been there. But it usually tastes pretty good. <laughs> Well, I was introduced to Andrea several years back. I have a friend named Nai, and she came over to our house, and I think she, for like a potluck, and she brought 
some lemongrass beef skewers, some grilled beef skewers. And my wife and I are like, these are amazing. Can we get the recipe for these? And she did one better. She, uh, I think that either my birthday or Christmas, she dropped a copy of. <laughs> oh, my firstborn. Everyone's favorite cookbook, Vietnamese cookbook is called Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, written by our guest today. And it's your firstborn baby. It's on my shelf now. Yes. No, the firstborn is always spe- extra special. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It is fantastic. It is fantastic. And like I said, you know, for those of us who kind of love Vietnamese flavors, but don't don't get out of the fun banh mi realm very often, this book really is a great intro, but also a deep dive into some things. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little more in a second. And so, yeah, thanks for bringing your kitchen into our kitchen, Andrea, as well as Seven other babies. We'll talk about the other book babies that you have as well. Is it okay if we talk about your roots a little bit? I noticed one thing about this book that is so great is that it is a little bit of family history, a little bit of history history, and definitely culinary history. Uh, Can we talk about your roots a little bit? Yeah. Born in Vietnam. Yes. I I was born in Vietnam and uh, was there until I was uh, six years old in 1975. And my family was very fortunate Mm -hmm. to be able to have been uh, able to escape, to fly out of Saigon about a week before the fall of Saigon in April of 1975. Literally a week. (laughs) Literally a week. I mean, we were very lucky. We, you know, my dad found a connection to help us get out. Um, And there are a lot of families that weren't so lucky, you know? And um, when we came here, we ended up in Southern California in a little beach town called San Clemente, which mm-hmm. is very close to Camp Pendleton, one of the resettlement uh, camps. Uh, Camp Pendleton was a Marine and still is a Marine base. And we, um, my dad was like, you know, if this town is good for an American president, and Richard Nixon was <laughs> living there at the time, he goes, if it's good enough for an American president, it's good enough for me. <laughs> So, so we ended up living there and my parents thought there were going to be other Vietnamese people uh, who would resettle there, but they didn't. Mm. They went elsewhere in the country. Um, they went uh, about 45 minutes north of, of San Clemente to resettle in what would become um, the largest, the granddaddy of little Saigons in America in the Westminster um, area. And, um, and so, you know, my my mom still lives there. My dad died in San Clemente. You know, I um, still live in California after all these uh-huh. years. And I always think that, you know, like I'm 1.5 generation. Right. You know, I'm like have one foot in the old country, but more here. And um, and and that gives me a certain limited perspective, I, I would say, a, a hybrid perspective on cuisine and culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um wouldn't necessarily call it third culture, what, you know, right. youngins are referring to nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I feel like you know so much more than you're giving yourself credit for. I learned so much. Just I feel like every time we chat, I, I get more little nuggets about Viet culture that, you know, sometimes I think, why don't I know that? I should know that. Well, thank you. Um, I feel, but you know, like in, in our professions, regardless of what we do, you guys, regardless, we never feel like we know enough. Sure. Yeah. 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 Fair. And, and I think that that's actually makes that, the aspect of lifelong learning is what makes my job and my work so satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can tell when you read it, like every, Every recipe has a little yellow section above it with a little mm-hmm. story or a little history, and it's fantastic. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. I have to confess, I cooked from your first book just last week. Um, I'm diving into a new recipe. Um, it's only the second Viet recipe I've ever gotten to do for cooks, mm. but it's Mi Sao Yong. Oh, God. Right? So good. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. And people loved your recipe. Loved, loved, oh, loved thank it. thank you. Thank you. I mean, you know, I mean, I think about recipe development and and over time for someone like me who's been doing it for a while, like the first book, our first attempt at doing something, you know, we try to stay as close as possible to tradition, but also understand our that, you know, we're cooking in America with different um, ingredients. Mm -hmm. So to stay true, 
right? Mm -hmm. To, to where we are. And then over time, you know, you feel a little bit more confident to like play with things, you know, cause like I, I look at, but I know like those recipes in Into the Vietnamese Kitchen are like so damn effing good. Uh -huh, uh -huh. They're like rock solid, <laughs> you know, cause I like sweated on that book so much. And it, and it's because it was my first book. Yeah. Yeah. And so whenever I go back to cook from, from those recipes, I, you know, I'm the same, I'm like, oh my God, mm -hmm. <laughs> you really covered your yeah. ass. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It tastes really yeah, good. Yeah, well, yeah. it doesn't read like a first cookbook. There are, uh, it's polished. The recipe writing is very polished in a way that I don't often see when people are newer to recipe writing. Certainly that's the case, um, with a lot of bloggers where it's, I think it's just a matter of experience. And, you know, as more and more people use your work and give feedback, you, mm. you learn how to write and, and what to anticipate. And all of that was present in your first book. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, um, I had, I had one of the best editors around, Aaron Weiner and copy editors too, but I did certain things like, that I don't know if people do these days um, with their writing when they're making a book. I read things aloud. Hmm. And and you, you say to yourself, does that sound good? What is the cadence like? Mm -hmm. And I was never, you know, growing up, English and writing were really such a struggle for me because it's not my my native language. You know, I didn't grow up in a in a home that knew about idioms right, and stuff like right. that. And so I really struggled with figuring out, you know, how should I sound? What is my voice? And do I want to sound academic? And I was like, no, you know, but I want to sound sort of serious, but I know that I want to be someone's coach in the kitchen. I know I do not want to be my mother <laughs> in your kitchen. <laughs> um, and did you do that reading aloud for both the head notes and the introductions and um, yes. and the, the recipe writing itself, like the, the directions? So, yes, so, sometimes the directions too. I had a lot of energy back then. And I would <laughs> and I would read those things aloud partly um, for cadence and then also for proofreading purposes. Mm -hmm. And that was a long book because it, it was like 100, or 175 yeah. recipes. I think they're way over. It's like 350 pages. Uh -huh. And it's not like super photographed and so it's a lot of words yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Let's, let's take it back to your mom for a second we got to talk about this orange notebook which i i think is a fantastic story but i i don't think it's totally unique either i think a lot of folks when you were told you had to leave a city or your you know your dad told your mom we're leaving tomorrow and she grabbed what a, a change of clothes for each of you you have four siblings so five kids a change of clothes, some of her jewelry, and this orange notebook. You want to tell us what's in that orange notebook? Yeah, you know, the the orange notebook is, um, when you look at it, you go, it's just like this flimsy little orange notebook. But um, it contained her recipes that she had written down over the years. Um, and it's like her domestic book of domesticity is mm -hmm. what it translates into Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And um, she wrote down recipes that she thought, would or were keepers or she would find them in um saigon newspapers oh. and she would make my sisters copy them down um to quote unquote practice their penmanship <laughs> and so there's a mixture of hair handwriting my sister's handwriting and it filled half of the the notebook which was about uh it's it's a total of 100 pages around mm. and so like 50 of the pages were in Vietnam, and then the remainder are filled now with recipes that were collected in America of things of like Vietnamese dishes that that she made here, like um, her how she tweaked her banjung, um, which is like jongze. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, they're they're eaten. We eat them during um, Tet, and they are wrapped um, as squares in banana leaf and. Um, and bamboo leaf and then you know there's like fried wontons with my father's handwriting and his penmanship is absolutely gorgeous mm. he never cooked in vietnam really for our family but coming here he um he did more yeah. or he participated because he had more time and then there are like recipes for brownies <laughs> <laughs> and like pineapple upside down cake which to us was like so exotic yeah 
Yeah, yeah. You know, we thought, oh, this is America. We're going to add this to like mom's book of domesticity. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite fusion dish? Like, uh, I think Lon was talking about her her grandma's fried rice. But do you have you have anything with spam or or something that you can only find here, but your your mom mixed it with what she was comfortable with? Um. Well, I mean, she was she's an odd purist. So like, we would make chili beans from those chili like packages that were sold um, back in the day. The and, <laughs> yeah. Yes. It would, and, and so we would make chili and then like serve it over spaghetti. Actually, it was just like, whatever, you know, <laughs> but we would serve that up and she'd be like, I need my rice. Yeah. And we're like, we got the carbs, you know, we didn't even like, we didn't even know anything about low carbonate back in the seventies, but she was like, I need my rice every day. Andrea, can I ask, did your family do a fusion Thanksgiving? I remember a lot of like kind of my mom thinking, oh, this is an American holiday we should celebrate. And she would buy the turkey and she'd buy the box of stovetop. But, you know, rather than like a mirepoix, you'd, we'd have, I'd find like shiitakes and carrots and um, scallions in the stovetop. And then instead of a traditional turkey, traditional turkey, there'd be like this soy sauce, oyster sauce marinade. And it was always like, <laughs> it was good. It was just different. And yeah, yeah. No, we, um, she, my mom had, had a fair amount of knowledge about French cooking. And so she looked at the turkey. She's like, oh, dandong. I'm going to roast, you know, a turkey like French style. And, um, and so, but then she would make sticky rice stuffing mm -hmm. with, you know, mm -hmm. with, and then she would make like chestnuts that she, my dad would roast and peel. And, but she would, instead of parsley, she would use cilantro with the butter and she would put cognac into her sticky rice stuffing. And, um, and she loves sweet potatoes. So like one of us would have to make like sickly sweet potatoes for her, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Not with marshmallows. She doesn't like marshmallows. She doesn't like things that are like super soft. She doesn't like mashed potatoes. She wants texture. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and she doesn't like pie. She likes tarts. <laughs> she doesn't like, she's got That's like very French. <laughs> right? It is. Yeah, she's yeah. like apple pie. No, French tart. Yes. Ah, huh. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, let's dive into that for a second. Like Vietnam is... An interesting place that you you talk about a little bit in the in the beginning of your book, and the fact that it was such prime real estate that everyone wanted a piece of it, and so you have the Chinese trying to get in there, and then of course the Europeans getting in there. How how is all that shaped to Vietnamese cuisine as as you know it? Take a look at banh mi, man. You know what yeah. you've got you've got the French bread in there, but then it's somehow made kind of crunchy because I think the my theory is that the Vietnamese were baking in humidity. Mm. And so they need to manipulate that dough somehow to make it rise. And um, sometimes they added some um, uh, rice flour to make it super crunchy. Uh -huh. But then, you know, you've got the butter, you've got the Maji seasoning sauce in there, um, which was a French uh, uh, ingredient that was introduced. Tastes this like soy sauce, but it's not. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it tastes really good. It's part of the banh mi flavor. And then butter was so expensive, pe but people had eggs and oil and a little acid, so they made mayonnaise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and you got the pate, but the pate has Chinese five spice because who has, you know, four spice, you know, the quatre piece from mm -hmm, France. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, people like we're doing all this stuff and it's like, who has time, you know, who has those fancy French sausages and and you know the saucisson and the and the um, jambon, the ham. We're gonna put Vietnamese cold cuts in there, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then we're gonna cut pickles and and yeah. herbs and and all that stuff. And and together it becomes the Vietnamese uh, banh mi that we know today. Of course, there are many renditions. Some were sure. very simple, just um, bread and even salt and pepper was what my parents remember from the 1930s because mm -hmm. it was such a treat. And the bread was always like sold in a rattan basket covered with and lined with burlap mm -hmm. because it was so fresh mm -hmm. and you wanted to retain its um, crunch. That crispy, yeah. Yeah, you still see it today. Hopefully, I haven't been back to Vietnam in a while, but the, the banh mi deliveries um, happen several times a day to banh mi vendors and um, I recall seeing them on like these motor scooters in like these tall baskets 
um, you know, wicker rattan baskets and they're lined with, with burlap. Hmm. <laughs> it still happens. It's great. So I hope it still does. And I heard you mention, and I never thought about this before, how when the French came and they, they kind of introduced the Vietnamese kitchen to, to beef, but it wasn't the primal cuts, you know, you weren't eating the, the prime rib or the steaks, but the French would leave behind the carcasses. And then the Vietnamese cook said, hey, we'll we'll make broth out of this. We'll make stew. And that kind of led to a whole the, the use of beef in Vietnam is kind of based more on the carcasses than the steaks. Yeah, it's like, you know, no waste cooking, man. You know, they're like they cut a, they used all of the prime fillet and whatever that you could get off of the the poor cows. And I mean, you know, you go to Southeast Asia, they're not like like wagyu beef, you know, kind of thing. They're not massage. I mean, they're yeah, like these are work animals. animals. <laughs> they're work animals. Yeah, yeah you, the cows are, are you know, water buffalo are, mm-hmm. are draft animals. And um and yeah, the French started, you know, uh, harvesting the the cows for for their beef steak and and left the Vietnamese with these very tough cuts and the bones and and there was a sale all of a sudden right uh-huh. with beef parts and and um the story goes that the the noodle soup vendors in Hanoi around the turn of the twentieth century you guys so you know hundred and twenty years ago mm-hmm. um saw an opportunity to retool a noodle soup that they were making with rice noodles and water buffalo. And all of a sudden they had beef. And then they were like, oh, we're gonna do things a little different and maybe we'll add some spices. And and then that over time um evolved into what we know today as pho. So when people say, oh, the French influenced Vietnamese food so much, I'm just like, eh, they brought stuff in. <laughs> We appropriated it and like made it something of our own. It's the kind of cultural survival and appropriation that I'm like wholeheartedly supportive of. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's interesting. So yeah, you can get a little more of this in, in Andrea's books and it's just, it's fascinating. Like I, I read it like a novel. Like I, I I don't even know how many recipes I've used, but I, I read your book like a novel and it's just, it's amazing. It's really great. Thank you. You're not the first to say that. And I'm very, you know, honored. Um, cause not all of us are, are going to cook thoroughly. We're going to, you know, look, we're going to, you know, people sometimes just want to look at pictures, but I hope that they read and hope they cook and, and somehow they get hooked mm-hmm. on the cuisine and the culture. Yeah. What, what are some of the distinctives that you would say are unique isn't the right word, but what are some of the things that makes Vietnamese cooking so distinctive? Um, People love to come up to me and they go, I love Vietnamese food. And Lon's probably heard this before too. (laughs) It's so fresh. It's not Chinese food. It's not Thai food. It's not Japanese food. And I go, yes, it is not. (laughs) It is not (laughs) those cuisines. (laughs) We, it is the quiz distinctive cuisine of Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. And when I describe it vis-a-vis Thailand, which is right next door, I say that Thai food is full of lust and peaks and valleys. You know, it's like the flavors are like right there and they really, they go up and down and they like take you on this wild ride. Whereas Vietnamese food is more undulating hills. Hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's just soft hills. And so we like heat, but not too much. We like spice, but not a ton. We eat a lot of raw vegetables uh, and herbs. And um, it's those ingredients play these pivotal roles in what is an extremely agrarian cuisine. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very green that way. There's not, you know, that much meat. And I think that that, it's not to say that that distinguishes it, but it's certainly like you, the level of raw produce that is seen at the, on the Vietnamese table on a, on a daily basis is very different than, than what you would see featured, um, on other, uh, Southeast Asian and Asian tables. Mm-hmm. So like the Chinese and Chinese cuisine, rarely do you see, you know, raw vegetables served raw. True. Yeah. Maybe as a pickle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think the Vietnamese saw eating these herbs almost like, I mean, like the only other cuisine that I can 
and like I can compare it to is like Persian cuisine where you're like, you know, you're like just massive amounts of herbs with stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like bah, handfuls practically. Yeah. And you're varying every single mouthful. Um, and the other thing, but but approach wise, I think that Vietnamese food um, is highly customizable and personalizable. Mm. There, that's why there are few, um, there are rules and parameters. And I try to set guardrails for people so that they understand what um, a, uh, like what pho is, but then they, you know, that's just why I wrote the pho cookbook, but then like you can make pho cocktails if you understand like some <laughs> of the ideas behind pho and the elements and the flavors, you can make a pho dumpling if you want to, you know, and if you don't want to do those things, like they're too scary with for you, you can make pho using an instant pot mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> versus like a long simmer mm-hmm. so that it's totally doable in a, in a modern uh, context. So there's a lot of flexibility in Vietnamese food, which um, I think is a positive thing because everyone's invited to the party, but it can also be a negative in the sense that it changes so often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we love our fish sauce. But even when you compare fish sauce between um, countries that use it a lot, um, you know, Thailand and the Philippines, for example, the Thai fish sauce is um, it, it lacks a certain sweet lilt that Vietnamese fish sauce um, does. And it's like it's a little gutsier and um, Filipino patis tends to have a little bit more of a flat flavor profile. I find it like. A kind of aggressively salty in comparison yes. to to some of the the Southeast Asian ones. Like there's it's yeah it's just more intense. The the it's like someone took the salt dial and just turned it up and turned the other ones down just a tiny bit. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's very interesting. So whenever people come to me and they're like, "What do you recommend for a fish sauce?" and I say I suggest. Uh, it's, you don't have to make a lot of Vietnamese food, but I think like a Vietnamese style fish sauce is going to like be the middle path to like being able to have very flexible, uh, uh, economy that's very flexible to use in the kitchen. Hmm. I, yeah, I th- it's I'll- funny. I find that pragmatic approach to cooking really fascinating because, uh, you know, I work in a variety of cuisines and, when you approach certain cultures, there is one way and that's the way. And you just, you can't deviate because then it's not that dish anymore. And I find that when I talk to Vietnamese cooks, like they, there's an acknowledgement that there are multiple ways to do the thing. Of course, they think their way is right and it's the best way, but there's no (laughs) best way. It's totally fine that other people do it differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's highly personal cuisine and cooking. Um, and so I feel like, you know, after writing six books and that I was ready to just kind of be super creative with the cuisine in my new book, Evergreen Vietnamese, because it's there's like there are all of these cool hacks in there. I like I make fake meat. Um, in a way that most Vietnamese cooks don't. I make like a vegan fish sauce and it's, and everything is stars plants because plants pace play such a pivotal role. Um, and I, you know, do things like we have all of these special salads, these gai and no in the Vietnamese, um, repertoire and the icon. And they're always like super meaty and they're always super so damn complicated to make. And I was like, I just want to eat these salads on like a daily basis. I don't want to like save it for like, family get-togethers and meetups <laughs> and so i started like pulling back some of the ingredients um the the, the proteins are, are swapping it for um mushroom or something and just pulling things back and letting the vegetables star more and they were just like fabulous and doable and i thought you know what if if we can think rethink the cuisine in this manner then i feel like that becomes much the cuisine becomes much more doable to people, especially as like we're trying to figure out how to eat more healthily and sustainably um, for the planet and as well as for our long-term um, health and, and longevity. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. We, we'll skip over the other books. We'll, we'll get back to the other books later, I think. But let's talk about food book baby number seven, The Evergreen Vietnamese. 
uh, came out in April 2023, and it is a shift towards plant plant based uh, Vietnamese cooking. Now you say yourself you're not becoming a vegan or anything like that, but no. you're shifting. You're sh- yeah. What yeah. what what kind of brought about this shift in your mind? Um, I turned fifty, and um, I started. Mm-hmm. I had some some health issues mm-hmm. that um made me realize like oh my goodness i've been going through perimenopause and um how can i really calm myself down and eat healthier and um sustain that for the long haul and i think a lot of times when we're talking about um midlife issues we can it's they seem life-threatening because there's a point where you're going through these changes and you're like oh my god there are very odd things happening to my body (laughs) this is unnatural. Am I going to die? I'm just going to put it out there because whether mm-hmm. women, you know what, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's happening. And men, you go through it too. Uh-huh. You know, my husband calls it men opause. Uh. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he's white. Okay. <laughs> and the thing is that like, um, it's, it's stuff that people, my mother's generation and her age, as she said to me, um, we didn't, have the luxury of knowing what this was in Vietnam. We didn't have a term for menopause. It's like a Western construct. And she said to me, just keep yourself busy and you'll, you know, it'll go away. And I was like, no, I don't think so. (laughs) That is such a like, it's a generational thing. I think a lot of women, a lot of Vietnamese women of that generation and older ones, it just assume there's just this mentality that if you push through and keep going, eventually it'll pass and everything will be fine. You just got to tough it out. And um, it's really, I don't know, I find it very heartening that we're just talking about this more. It's, it's, we should share our knowledge. It's, um, it makes the whole process a little bit less intimidating. Mm-hmm. It, it does. And I think that with cookbook writing, everything always has to be so darn cheerful. But I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I have a cheerful <laughs> experience <laughs> because I doubled down on my vegetables. I was like looking around for different um, dietary options, right? But I'm just like, I'm not a virtuous eater, man. I'm always like trying to break the rules, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be paleo. And then I was like looking at the Mediterranean diet that I was, was like, oh, and Mediterranean diet. And I thought, but I'm not Mediterranean. There's only so much olive oil I can eat <laughs> and cook with. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. And, and even so, like the Mediterranean diet, sometimes the me- people, proponents of that diet say, oh, you can have a little tofu too. And I'm like, wait a second here. <laughs> tofu belongs to Asian people. Tofu's, you know, started a good 2000 years ago in China. Let's not let it suck it, you know, get sucked up into the Mediterranean diet. And so I was like thinking, you know, as as we all need to figure out um ways to eat healthily and nowadays we cook and we enjoy multicultural experiences, you know, it's it's intersectionality in the kitchen kind of like. And um so I was like, what can Vietnamese food contribute to that? Hmm. And so I started retooling a lot of my recipes to figure out what I can provide for someone myself um, who's like interested in vegetables and eating a lot less meat. I I like lost like 15 pounds. I felt better. And I go back to my mother and I say, oh, mom, I'm like feeling so much better and um, I'm less stressed and and she looked at me, she said, oh, I'm so happy for you. And she used um, this word in Vietnamese, thin, which said, oh, and she says, gong, you know, gong thin lai, which is like, child, you like refreshed yourself, you reawakened. Mm. And she said, I'm so happy for you. And I said, I, I think that I, you know, like, like figure out this new diet thing with like a lot less vegetables. And my mom said, oh, we ate that way in Vietnam before we came over <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. Which is something that she never told me until like I struck up that conversation mm. with her. So it's this thing of like immigrants, you know, refugees coming to this country. There's a lot of cheap meat. We changed our diet. Yeah. And um, as a result, and also the so the mentals and stresses of just being living in the 21st century, you know, it's like we need to kind of think about our our culinary roots. Mm-hmm. And so um Evergreen Vietnamese is is about plant base in like a Vietnamese manner, which is a lot of plants and a little bit of meat. Um, and I think that, you know, 
that's kind of I'm trying to make that my contribution to the discussion and and it it's it's the kind of food that I can keep eating and not get tired of mm-hmm. yeah. and it can be part of a lot of people's repertoires yeah. and it's full of these really cool enduring evergreen ideas um that have come from the Vietnamese kitchen so you know I did things like like typically in a cookbook the rice chapter comes at the towards the end because rice is like a side dish and then my editor is like you know what you have been talking about the importance of rice since your first cookbook uh-huh. <laughs> why don't you consider moving the rice chapter up to the top right after the pantry mm-hmm. section mm-hmm. and so i was like all right let's do it it's so bold right <laughs> 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 we- <laughs> And so we did because I was like, go rice, you know, right, I mean, yeah. so there, you know, this is a book that, that, um, that is probably my most creative book to date. It's very joyful. And, um, and I'm really happy a lot, a lot of people are getting into it. Can I ask a question about rice? I, um, I've been working on some rice recipes in the last year and the thing that's come up a lot is, um, how healthy different types of rice are brown versus white where what's your take on on you know like there's there's I don't, prestige is the wrong word but there's uh, white rice is status yeah there's status, status to being able to afford it even though you know these days it's kind of the other way around it feels like brown rice is the status <laughs> rice these days it's more virtuous yeah. <laughs> um but where where do you stand do you have a preference I love a particular brown jasmine rice mm-hmm. brand, Three Ladies. I love how mm-hmm. it's aromatic. It cooks up to a chew um, and it is super healthy. It costs more than the polished Three Ladies. And um, it's a generational thing with the brown rice too, because I remember trying to get my parents to eat more whole grains. And my mom was digging it. She was like, oh, yeah, brown rice. Got it. My dad's like, no way. (laughs) No, because people of their generation. Okay, my dad was born in 1930. My mom was born in 1934. He recently passed at the age of like 91. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they know about how rice is grown and processed and what it tastes like from, you know, stock Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. table. And so the ability to have polished rice is so important to them. And it is very much like a status thing, even though nowadays people are like, you know, eat too much white rice and, you know, uh, it's going to cause <laughs> diabetes, which is like a, an, an issue within the Asian American yeah. community. Yeah, absolutely. And all those right, white rice products, you know, um, in rice paper, boon rice noodles, mm-hmm. ban pho, you know, for mm-hmm. pho noodle soup. Mm-hmm. It's all like, polished rice but um i really love my brown rice to eat every day and um that's our go-to rice but you know what it has its limits though right lon because you only do certain things with brown rice it can't white rice is like eternally (laughs) manipulable yeah i i have to say i go the other way and maybe i I need to try this brand is what i'm hearing but um Mm. but i just i I love that. I love the texture of white rice of, of like just the look, the way it feels when you like dig into it with your chopsticks, like the, the cling that brown rice just mm-hmm. doesn't have, or at least not any yeah. of the brown rice I've tried. I got to try your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I went through, uh, we were trying to eat healthier. And then for years I was like trying all these different kinds of brown rice. I would go to my health food store. I would buy like really expensive brown rice grown domestically and then one day i tried uh three ladies and and it's really like the there's something about the strain that they're growing in southeast asia of jasmine Mm -hmm. rice um and it cooks up beautifully it's not too sticky Mm -hmm. but it's 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 got a little stick to Mm -hmm. it yeah um and it cooks up maybe just like 10 it takes maybe like 10 minutes longer than white rice so it doesn't take too long yeah. All right. And so it's really, yeah, I try it. I'm sold. Yeah. I'm sold.
so Andrea, let's say let's say we invite you over to the house, and Lon and I are there. We'll we'll uh, we'll sous chef for you. But if you were gonna cook for a uh, for a party of, of omnivores, let's say there's a couple couple meat eaters, a couple pescatarians, and a couple vegetarians. What sorts of things would you make to kind of keep everyone happy and 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 maybe hit hit all the spots for the people out some out of your new cookbook and maybe some from your old cookbooks what what kind of feats would you make i would i'm kind of a lazy cook um don't well, worry about it i'll sous chef so, for you i got it yeah all well, right. <laughs> so so what i would do is i um would have set up for people to make um ban kwai which are these um hoi rice crepes that are in um i have a recipe in evergreen vietnamese uh that i retooled um and there's a recipe in my first book as well and they're like the equivalent of a fried crunchy rice taco and you can fill them with anything mm. they're super they're much easier to make than sizzling rice crepes which um require a little bit more finessing but these guys man you can fill them with vegetarian or mm. surf and turf combination Smart, yeah. you know with lots of herbs and lettuce and a, a uh like garlicky spicy hoisin dipping sauce and so that would be like the main dish and i would make and you can like prep all of that out a couple of days in advance mm. and you can soak rice to make a beautiful batter. You can use rice flour from the Asian market. You can even finesse like rice flour that you buy from a regular supermarket too. And um, I would set out a bunch of liquor. <laughs> I would demo how to make one of these and then let people add it. But before that, I would have some snacks. <laughs> so uh, of course. Everyone loves snacks. Um, and so, you know, because Curtis, you're into those beef grilled skewers, yeah. you know, lemongrass beef skewers. I would make those because those are beautiful dipped in um, that uh, the hoisin dipping sauce. Uh-huh. So right now I've got one sauce and I'm making two uses, right? Uh-huh. I could even like grill off that that beef and then put it in a rice paper roll yeah. so that I could have other things that I put in rice paper rolls and dip it in that sauce. All of a sudden now I am making a vat of that sauce. <laughs> <laughs> and that sauce um, can be made, you know, vegetarian, vegan, um, uh-huh. or or with a little chicken broth. And um, and then have some a bunch of sweets, like the best fruit. But I mean, you know, if we're kind of have a feast. We can then like stir fry some noodles, maybe make those noodles that Lon was talking about. Um, if people want to be gluten free, we can pan fry um, wide rice noodles. There are some my favorite recipes for that, where the rice gets really crunchy, um, is in um, the Fug Cookbook. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, have a bunch of sweets. Sometimes I like double down on the snacks because I love snacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. All appetizers all the time, man. <laughs> I know. I know. And so, like, I love to make like. There's this mushroom, uh, five-spice mushroom pate in evergreen Vietnamese that's just like, it's practically like liver pate. And I remember like serving my dad uh, this uh. pate. And he's like the type of person, one time we went to a Chinese vegetarian restaurant and um, he was very pleasant while we were there. My sister like wanted to to eat there. And then afterwards in the car, he says to my mom and me, that was not real food. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and he's not even willing to eat brown rice, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he otherwise, like, he he loves, he's a gourmet. He loves to eat. But he was like, that I that was fake food. But so anyway, so one day um, when I was working on Evergreen Vietnamese, I brought the pate to my dad, the mushroom one. And I served it to the whole family. Didn't tell him. Uh-huh. And he goes, this is really good. <laughs> and I was like, guess what? <laughs> There's no liver in it. <laughs> and he was like... Wow. You know, and then he didn't say anything else, but he ate a lot of it because he knew like for his for his heart condition, for example, like yeah. he can't eat that much liver pate. Yeah. But yeah. the mushroom one he gobbled down. Huh. That's a so win. That pate is really great. <laughs> and it can also be put into a wonton and um air fried or deep fried so that it's like and dipped in like a little um sweet and sa- sweet chili sauce and it's mm. quite delicious. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it sounds like it'd be awesome and bun me as well. 
Yes. Oh, totally. Totally. It's yeah. like a bun me thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I put it in bun me, but like for a party, I would put it in want deep fried wonton uh-huh. or uh, or a uh, oven fried wonton or air fried uh-huh. wonton. Yeah. 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 And it's and serve it with like beer, bubbly, mm-hmm. and then a bunch of sweets at the end, fresh fruit or cake or sorbet if it's summer. Right now, I'm eyeing all the corn to make this stuff called corn milk, mm-hmm. which is a Vietnamese beverage that is, I just make it with um, coconut milk and corn. Then I cook with the cobs and even like the silk because corn silk and corn and um, the husk have flavor. Uh-huh. We always throw them away, but they have like a really beautiful, hmm. bright, corny flavor. What do you, hmm. I know. Yeah. What do you do with the silk? I'm, I'm intrigued. So I take the silk and I take a number of um, the husk and I and I wrap the silk in the husk I'm, as a little bundle, and then I like drop it into the pot and I like <laughs> cut the 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 corn kernels off the cob, and then I throw you know the cobs in the pot too, mm-hmm. and then I cook it for a while and um and then I blend it all up. There's a little coconut milk in there, mm-hmm. and our and it's like silk yeah in in vietnamese and it's so damn good no sugar needed i gotta yeah. try this our, our summertime corn is so delicious it's like my drink of choice in the summer and you can even like practically eat it as a soup and it was so delicious <laughs> and one of my recipe testers added rum to make a cocktail uh-huh, with it uh-huh. i know yeah <laughs> i mean this is all like you know vegetable stuff that we don't even think about i mean yeah. you have the gateway drugs to vietnamese cooking right are um, gai kung, rice paper rolls, bun mi sandwiches, and fall noodle soup. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And there are like so many th- ways, that directions you can take those two dishes. Um, but from there, I, you know, I hope to like get people to explore all these other things that are a little bit easier to make, you know, bun mi is pretty easy. Gai kung is pretty easy. Fall, you know, can be, can be a challenge, but I mean, you know, to just like really uh-huh. like, like kind of like, like, open up the Pandora's box of yeah. like all the potential of Vietnamese food so that people realize that they can make it themselves. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I would say that pho isn't any trickier than making chicken broth at home. Like it's, it's a, it can be a time commitment if you're not doing the Instapot version, but otherwise it's not actually much work. Like you, no, you're just boiling. Yeah, like it just, you're simmering. It sits on the stove. <laughs> your house smells fantastic. And then you have this lovely meal. Yeah, but don't you think that there are challenges or people perceive challenges when they go and they ask their first generation parents how to make pho and they're like, oh, you can't make it. <laughs> yeah. Because you realize I simmer it overnight. <laughs> My mother was never that way because she was like, she was working at home as a dressmaker and, but we always had dinner on the table she had pho on the weekends and other noodle soups too mm-hmm. and i once asked her about i said well you never like cooked pho that way she goes of course not <laughs> it would take you that long if you were making enough for like uh-huh. you know 20 30 people and you had a large pot that you had to like bring to a boil but if you're just making a smaller batch that's totally unnecessary that's that's and she was like i don't know what those people are saying <laughs> that's so interesting because she's absolutely right um, like bringing four quarts of water up to a boil takes not very long. Um, <laughs> my mother's response to me trying to make fun at home was the exact opposite. It was, why would you make it? You can just go buy it. It's so good. Just go buy it. <laughs> um, but you know, like, I don't think everyone can buy good fun. Like it really depends on the community you live in. And if you can't buy it, you should know that it's actually pretty easy to make. Exactly. And the other thing is that it's a hit and miss at a file restaurant. Yeah. You know, I mean, it could be good on one day. If you go on a day where cooks are a little tired or at the end of the shift mm-hmm. and the broth is just not that mm-hmm. right. Yeah. It's yeah. been simmering so, for like eight hours. It's kind of lost yeah, a little it's something. Tired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's tired. And so when you cook at home, you get to control everything. However that you like it, you like it sweet, you like it salty, you want, you know, lots of vegetables in there. Um, 
And so I, I think that, that that's very empowering about a cuisine that, you know, to say to people, you can get that out. Yeah, but you can get it better and have it your way if you make it at home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you have a whole book on it. We have baby number five, the faux cookbook. We have book number four, the Bon Mi handbook. So you can find a lot of recipes for pho in your cookbooks. Yeah. And then like in, in the new book, I have three pho recipes because uh-huh. I was like, I'm going to slay the vegetarian pho. Uh-huh. So I have like this really great quick vegetarian pho. Vegetarian um, pho. All right. And then there's like my what I call the deluxe vegan pho. And then there is a chicken and vegetable pho because I, I noticed that people would get my uh, pho cookbook and they were like, make the chicken pho, but they would put all these vegetables in the bowl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, wait up, hold up here. <laughs> what is this? You know, <laughs> and what is this? And then I started seeing like some like Vietnamese restaurants like put vegetables in the pho too, uh-huh. like in chicken pho, but it wasn't like a vegetarian pho. So then I re- I thought to myself, okay, how can I build like this chickeny umami, you know, flavor with chicken and vegetables and vegetables. If you formulate, you know, you combine certain vegetables, it can really bolster the flavor of the chicken. And you have like this wonderful bowl of noodle soup without having to use a bunch of chicken. Um, I mean, and you have a bunch of vegetables that you can serve in the bowl as well. Mm. And like animal protein prices have gone up a lot. Yeah. So, um, and also like I used to feel bad when I would ask people to use an entire chicken to make pho and you're only serving like, I don't know, say six to eight people, but it's like a lot of chicken. It is. There's always leftover for like, yeah, the next day. (laughs) Exactly. Uh Exactly. Then, you know, but in in the new recipe you're using, you're not using as much chicken. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be much more um, uh, resourceful cooking and it's crafty and um also for me as a recipe writer like more responsible in a way sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like oh you're going to have extra chicken <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's funny there are some folks who appreciate that you know this one soup is gonna make leftovers that you can reformulate the next day and so some folks are gonna want that recipe and then there are others who don't want the leftovers and they they just want to make the dish and then be able to move on to something else the next day. And it's Mm -hmm. nice that you can offer both. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Alon, when we're writing recipes, we don't know exactly who we're writing for yeah, and what they'll do to, to the recipe in their hands. And um, all I can hope is that, you know, they have, enough success to make the recipe again. Well, you mm-hmm. you do such a good job of providing just enough guidance. It's never didactic, it's never too much. It's but it's you 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 feel well armed to go shopping to to start cooking to like try new ingredients that maybe take a little bit of looking for. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean I really respect people who take the time to to cook, right? Mm-hmm. And um, nowadays it seems so easy to go buy things. But I mean, I honestly, I look at the packaging that is on a yeah. lot of products and I think, my goodness, if you just made that food at, ho- at home, it'll taste better. You won't have to deal with packaging. And I know that I sound like some kind of tree hugger type. Okay? No, it's just responsible. Yeah. It's just like responsible. And also like you can have it anytime you want. Yeah. But I know that part of the thing for people cooking um, a cuisine that they're unfamiliar with is finding ingredients. Yeah. And even down to, you know, I, I like when I first started writing, for example, I used to call green onions scallions <laughs> because my publisher like gave me a style sheet and they said, we call green onions scallions. <laughs> As it sounds upscale. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I use scallions and it's great because it's shorter, there's fewer characters. So like <laughs> one day, I can't remember how many books in, in I was scallioning <laughs> through, let's see, uh, into Vietnamese kitchen. Yes. Uh, Asian dumplings. Yes. Asian tofu. Yes. I think I got to the Bun Mi handbook and my mom said to me, what are scallions? What's a scallion? <laughs> 
they don't sell them in Safeway. Where, yeah. <laughs> where can I get yeah. some scallions? She goes, they, she, I said, it's a green onion. <laughs> and she goes, they are not called that <laughs> at the grocery store. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, okay, we're green onioning it here uh-huh. on it. <laughs> because, you know, we need to, even at that level where it's like so, you know, we're just trying to get people to choose a, the, ingredients that we would choose and to have that level of familiarity um and comfort yeah yeah in like finding a medium onion (laughs) (laughs) it's um curtis you would not believe how much time we spend over things like do i need to tell people it's a medium onion if i say an onion what size onion are they going to use and is that going to mess things up no, I think it'll be uh-huh, fine. Uh-huh. Are they going to get mad that I didn't say anything? It's going to be fine. It's just, it's never ending. But what what, what if the onions that day in the bin are like the Extra size large. of a softball? Yeah. <laughs> and they would be medium to that cook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't taste right. They're like, yeah. why doesn't it taste right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I slice all that, on- half of a medium onion to like garnish my, you know... <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like it's covered. It's French onion, onion. I mean, you know, it's like this mountain of onion. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, there's like it, you know, it keeps you up at night. It, <laughs> it, it certainly does. I feel like we veered into your other podcast by accident. Yeah, a little right. bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You do, you do do a podcast for aspiring cookbook authors. Yes, yeah. but you know what? On the other hand, like at the front of like Vietnamese food any day, which is all about grocery, mm-hmm. um, using grocery store ingredients for making Vietnamese food and evergreen Vietnamese. I have, you know, I always discuss ingredients, and that's what Lon was was talking about um, in my books. And I've like started recommending brands that I like, mm-hmm. just because like it's. Not all of us are fluent in Chinese, Vietnamese, and, right. you know, Thai, for example, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when yeah. we go to the store. And um, I've also, like, given people pointers on what is, like, a medium onion and a large onion or or medium green onion, mm-hmm. you know, so that people have a sense of, of, of size. Because yeah. the other thing that we don't want to do is provide too many weights yeah. for, for ingredients because that really scares people off. And, <laughs> And at a certain point, it doesn't matter to tell you the yeah. truth. Yeah. Sometimes Except it matters. Baking. Sometimes it doesn't. And right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody out there, is your uh, is your mouth watering yet? I hope so. I hope that you are inspired to grab one of Andrea's books or copy of Cooks Illustrated and do some of Lon's recipes as well. Uh, you guys know where you can get. Andrea's books, but we recommend uh, your local uh, independent bookstore. Uh, do you guys have a favorite local uh, bookstore that you like to shop at? I shop at a lot of, um, I, I live in Santa Cruz, so it's Bookshop Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. Um, I also um, uh, shop at cookbook bookstores. So they're all, you know, in different uh, parts of, of the country. You know, like there's Omnivore Books in San Francisco. yeah. yeah. Book Larder in Seattle, Kitchen Arts and Letters in New York City, Bold Fork Books in D.C., now serving in L.A. Uh-huh. I mean, they're all over the place. Over. And yeah. Lon, you got one? Um, just two. For those who are in the Boston area, um, Porter Square Books is fantastic. They do a great job of um, finding whatever you're looking for if they don't stock it. But they also have a really nice selection of books and cookbooks. Um, and then Wild Child is fairly new to me, but they're over at the Bow Market and um, just a really fun, very carefully curated collection of cookbooks. Um, plus, they serve wine occasionally, and that's fun, too. Hey! <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll give a shout out to Bookshop at West Portal. It's the one I go to the most. But of course, Books Passage over in Marin County is amazing as well. But yeah, you know where you can get cookbooks. So you can get any one of Andrea's seven cookbooks at any of those shops. But we recommend getting Evergreen Vietnamese, her latest. And you'll learn lots of hacks. I gotta look up how you make vegan pho. That's that's something cool. You got you you, you engineered that People one. People have fought me on this thing. They're like, they were like, what the pho? I mean, like, you know, pho is like beef. And I'm like, no, we have uh-huh. plenty of vegetarians and people who are into, you know, 
seeing if they are part-time vegetarians or full-time vegetarians in Vietnam, yeah. given the Buddhist traditions there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there's like seafood pho. I mean, there's all kinds of, there are pho salads right. or pho sandwiches. I mean, like the world of pho is never ending. It's so. not limited to number one, you know? <laughs> no, no, right. Number one, the duck bit. <laughs> but you can make your own vegetarian duck bit. Okay, yeah. All right, everyone. Hey, Andrea, you have time for a little lightning round? Sure. All right. And Lon, you can throw in a question too if you like here. All right. Uh, Andrea, what was your favorite cooking show or could be current cooking show that you've ever watched? Um, I love to watch um, Julia Child and Martin Yan. I'm going to do two. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong with those two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, favorite cuisine, not Vietnamese? Mexican. Really? Yeah. In California, we got some great, great Mexican food. Yeah. Hey, good question for you. I I saw someone's article. It wasn't an article. It was a comment on cilantro. Is cilantro Asian or is it New World? Oh, that's a good question, Curtis. That's a good question. We know that we know that culantro is New World, but cilantro or coriander. Yeah. I somehow feel it's been around like, for thousands of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, Lon, how don't how, how come we don't know this? Girlfriend? I guess I <laughs> my guess is old world. I, I mean, this is just based I, on the fact that coriander is used across so much mm-hmm. European um, and um, uh, the Middle East. The Middle East, You're right? Um, yeah, yeah. Like Muslim so. cultures use it a lot, and it got so I. My guess is the old world, but I don't know. Yeah, and coriander is related to carrots. It is, yeah. I believe. Same carrots, family. cumin, yeah. mint. Yeah. yeah. And carrots came from sort of like uh, Eurasia, I, guess, I think. My God, Curtis. Curtis. <laughs> I'm going to be Googling this I, I mean, as soon as we wrap. I know. Oh, man. I know. You know what? Know. You know, I'm going with your answer, though. I'm going to go old world because you're the experts here. And then if anyone wants to fight us over it, they can. They know how to email us. They can email. Yeah. yeah. Wait, can I ask one? Yeah, go for it. Andrea, what was the last cookbook you cooked from? Ah. The Vegan Chinese Cookbook. Oh, cool. Oh. By Hannah, Hannah Che. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's, it's. It's got some very interesting uh, ideas in there. Yeah, she just won a beard for that book. Exactly. Yeah. 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 She and I are kind of like tofu sisters. Yes, uh-huh. Curtis, you got to get her on. Hey, yeah. you know, you got the connection center my way. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw on. A, I'll throw a producer tag on that one for you, Lana. <laughs> give you executive producer <laughs> rights on that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, Lon likes this one. You can think of one too, Lon. This is the pick one category. You get to pick one of these, Andrea. Okay. Noodles or rice? Rice. Fish sauce or hot sauce? Fish sauce. Surf or turf? Or field? <laughs> Surf. Okay. All right. Lon, you got one? Uh, oh, sorbet or ice cream? Mmm. <laughs> Sorbet. Uh, I can explain to you why, because that's I'm mildly lactose intolerant. Okay. Okay. Right. There you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we like to end each episode by asking our guests who their infatuation is. An infatuation is anyone in the Asian community that you admire. It could be living or deceased, someone you know, or someone you admire from afar. So, Andrea Huynh, who is your infatuation? Currently. Okay. I'm infatuated uh, with Ocean Vuong. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a poet yeah. and and novelist, a memoirist. It's very interesting the work that he does. Yeah, yeah. Very moving. Um, but you know, and I I try to read a lot of books that are not cookbooks because it it's a break, uh-huh. but it also like takes me to a play a creative space. Yeah. yeah. Um. I have this Substack newsletter called Pass the Fish Sauce, and I'm always trying. It's where I get to practice writing more and expressing myself in different ways. And, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, writing was never a thing for me, so I work at it. And one of the ways you get to work at it is by reading good yeah, stuff. Yeah, read good stuff, yeah. Yeah. 
He's another one. If he wants to come on the podcast, we'll have Ocean on here. Uh, yeah, another amazing author. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if anyone out there would like to know more about our guest Andrea, they can find her. We just talked about it uh, on her website. It's called VietWorldKitchen.com, and you can go to the events page and kind of see where she might be coming closer to you. She's still on a little bit of a world tour, going to Southern California soon, and you've been to the East Coast, but we'll see what's next. So follow her there. Or if you want to be on her email list and read some of her writing, you can go to andreahuin.substack.com. I'll list all of this in the show notes, and then you'll get email updates from Andrea. Yeah? Yes. Amazing. Oh, it's a great newsletter. I, I look forward to getting all of your notes. It's awesome. Oh, thank you, Lon. That's that's very uh, – now I have to, like, really <laughs> – do an extra good job. <laughs> no, no, no. There are a number of writers, colleagues of mine. <laughs> you're doing great. Nah, they, Thank you. They're following you because they want to and they know your content. Yeah. And for Lon, where are you at? You're at Lon underscore cooks at Instagram. And you can follow Andrea Huynh 88 on Instagram. And again, I'll put all this in the show notes. I know you're not writing this down, folks out there. So we'll put it down for you so you don't have to copy it. And you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can write to us with your angry cilantro facts that you found online. You can write to us at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Infatuation Podcast. And you know where to get all these details. So, hey, Andrea, thank you so much for coming in today. Oh, you're very welcome, Curtis. This is like, you know, great time to just let loose yeah. with Lon and you. Yeah, no, we're all friends here. No no one else is listening. It's just us. <laughs> That's right. Cone of silence. <laughs> and Lon, thank you so much for hustling over from the, the shoe location. You gonna, can you give us any tips, any red herrings of what we're, what we're going to be seeing on Technically or... What yes. recipes coming up? Sure. I um we were shooting an episode or what were we shooting? We were shooting a video on fire and oh, how right. fire can change flavors either inside or outside. And so we were shooting the outside bit today. But uh, look forward in a couple months. We're a little ways out. All right. All right. You guys know where to find Lon. She's on YouTube at Technically, or you can watch America's Test Kitchen, or you can go to cooksillustrated.com and find more of her writing there. But thank you both so much for coming on, and have a great afternoon. Thanks, Curtis. Thanks, Andrea. And everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And until we talk to you again, on behalf of Andrea, Lon, and myself, we hope that you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. Until we talk to you again, bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. All right. That was fun. That's a wrap. Bye.